Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to finish up this glorious chapter. This is the greatest prayer In the Bible, this is the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, shortly before his crucifixion, which we'll get into, will begin next week in John chapter 18. But we find ourselves this morning at the end of John chapter 17 that we've been working through what is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And here's what I love about this chapter, but in particular, this portion of this chapter is that I love how the the Holy Spirit, in inspiring John to write this prayer down, just puts us right down in the middle, plop down in the middle of this glorious tension between the sovereignty of God and the necessity of prayer. How and why does a God who knows the beginning from the end, in fact, Isaiah 46, God says through the prophet to the nation of Israel, I know the end from the beginning. I have created it all. And yet Jesus, being God himself in the flesh, knowing the sovereignty of God, being God himself, is actually praying for God the Father to bring about the things that Jesus knows that God will bring about. So apparently Jesus doesn't have any tension between the necessity of prayer and the sovereignty of God. And I just absolutely love that. Here's the point of today's text. Jesus is praying for oneness, for the oneness of his people, and for this oneness to actually produce a witness amongst his people. So that's really the two points. That's kind of our outline. Not so much of an outline, but just the, really the, the main point of this text. Jesus is praying for our oneness, our unity in Christ, and then by implication with one another, and then he is praying that this oneness would be a witness to the onlooking world. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we work through this last portion of John 17. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this day. Thank you for August 21st, 2022. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we should, we must, we are called to rejoice in it. Lord, I know with a a room this size, with this many people gathered together, there are a myriad of distractions, there are obstacles, there's a wide spectrum of dispositions, of spiritual maturity, there are believers in this room, there are unbelievers in this room, There, there are so many things going on, even within the lives just represented in this church, in this building. Lord, would you help us to see what you are saying in your word. There's nothing more urgent and more important than we can give our attention to than focusing our hearts and minds on what your Holy Spirit is saying through your Holy Word to your people. Lord, please do that. Please help me communicate in a way that is helpful and not in any way a hindrance. And for any of our friends that are here this morning that do not know the Lord, Lord, would you be so kind not to cause them to look deep within themselves for extra grit or willpower to improve themselves, but would you back them into a corner so that they realize 
that they are dead in their sins and that their only hope is Christ? And would you give them a new heart so that they might believe and trust in Jesus? And for your people, for those that are already trusting in Christ, for those that already have a new heart, would you stir our affections? Would you make us more like Jesus? Would we love you more? And would we love one another more? And would the world see it more clearly as a result of our time together in your word? Lord, I pray that you would do this and help me help these brothers and sisters and friends. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first, amen, brother or sister, whoever that is, amen. The first portion of John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for himself. He's praying for his glory to be fully revealed. We looked at that. And then verses 6 through 19, Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples, the 12 that are with him here in the occasion of the Last Supper. We're really at the night before Jesus is betrayed and crucified, which we'll get into in the next chapter. So we're at the very end of Jesus' life. This is the final discourse. This is his last private ministry with his disciples before he is led away to his crucifixion. And this is his last prayer at the end of that Last Supper. And so he's prayed for himself At the beginning of the chapter, he's prayed for his disciples, and now he's going to pray for all of us. And really, we see here in verse 20 that actually what he's been praying for his disciples is expanded to all Christians. So verse 20, John chapter 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. So Jesus is clearly now expanding his prayer to include all Christians through the centuries, all those that would believe in me through their word. What does that mean? Their word meaning the word of the apostles. There, referring back to the disciples who would become the 12 apostles, who would, through them, would come the New Testament, through them would come the scriptures. And so we believe in Jesus because of the word at work through the word of the apostles. So he's praying for us. That they, verse 21 Now, here's this prayer for unity, for oneness. What is he praying for us? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So he's praying for this oneness that is equivalent to, that is a picture of, that is a a, a shadow of the oneness that God the Father has with God the Son. He's praying that we would be one with Him. And again, by implication, one with one another, just as the Father and the Son are one with one another. Why? Second half of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So there's a purpose of our salvation for the witness of the glory of God so that he might bring others, all of his people, all the way home so that he might gather a people from every tongue and tribe and nation to himself that those that he has called out of the world might believe in him. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Think about that. That's so magnificent. I mean, we can't wrap our minds around all that's going on there. The glory that the Father has given the Son, the Son has given to them, to us, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, verse 23, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, again, what's the purpose of this oneness? What's the purpose of this union? 
so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Or sorry, let me read that again. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, loved them even as you loved me. So think about that. Jesus is praying for oneness so that the world would know, and then he tacks on to that, that the world would know that God the Father loves his people, us, even as he has loved the Son. So think about that, that the love the Father has for the church, for the people in Christ, is the same love that he has for the Son. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, speaking about Christians through the ages, us, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what's Jesus praying for in verse 24? Not just for union, but for those that the Father has given him. Again, a particular nature to salvation, that Jesus is praying for a particular people that God the Father has given to him. This is echoing John chapter 6, where Jesus says to the disciples that all that the Father has given me will come to me. And what is he praying for those that through repentance and faith in him come to him? What is he praying for them in verse 24? That they may be with him. So Jesus in verse 24 is not just praying for our oneness with him, in other words, our salvation, but he is praying for our final glorification, that we would make it all the way to be with him, which I read to be, in verse 24, as heaven. That's where Jesus is. So, you know, sometimes the doctrine of the eternal security of Christians or uh, whether or not you can lose your salvation is debated in uh, Christian circles. And if all we had, I think, if, I think verse 24 is not one of the verses that often comes up as a kind of proof text to argue one way or the other. But all I need for this doctrine, really, in my mind, is verse 24, is I'm working under the correct, I think, biblical assumption that Jesus' prayers are answered, every single one of them. And Jesus, in verse 24, is praying that all that the Father has given him would make it all the way home and be with him. And I believe that Jesus' prayers are answered so that if you're a Christian, he is praying for you to make it to heaven. Every single one that the Father has given to the Son makes it to heaven because Jesus gets his prayers answered. That, 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 that deserves an amen. Verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made known to them your name, verse 26, and I will continue to make it known. So Jesus is praying right now at the end of his earthly life some 2,000 years ago at a point in time, but he will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So he's continuing to minister to his people through the Spirit 
through the word. And not only is he continuing to do that, he is actually, according to other passages in the New Testament, continuing to pray for us. Hebrews chapter 7 says that he daily lives to make intercession for us. Romans chapter 8 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. So this prayer, which happened again some 2,000 years ago approximately, continues in heaven today. Jesus is continuing to pray for his people. What Jesus prays, let me just look at this before I summarize with a, a few questions that I want us to think about in unity. I want you to see that Jesus prays for our oneness and Jesus prays for our witness. So if I had to summarize, if, if maybe you lived in my house and you woke me up in the middle of the night, um, which used to happen more when our kids were younger and now happens occasionally because my kids have cats. If you were to wake me up in the middle of the night and you were to ask me what this passage was about, I would say that Jesus is praying that. He's praying for our salvation. He's praying for our oneness. And this oneness is not first and foremost that we would be unified with one another, but we would be united with him. He's praying for our, our oneness. He's saying that I want them to be in me just as I'm in you. So he's praying for your salvation, which isn't that glorious and mysterious and wonderful? I mean, Jesus speaks with such certainty about salvation, he says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. There's a certainty to that. But Jesus is praying for what he certainly knows will come to pass. So he's praying for our salvation. And as a consequence of our salvation, we should be unified not only to God, but to one another. And this unity of our salvation and with one another is meant to be a witness, a display, so that the world would know that God has sent him. So again, let me summarize quickly, waking me up at three o'clock in the morning, just what is this text about? Jesus is praying for your salvation, our salvation, our union with him, and by implication with one another, which he will use as a witness to the onlooking world. That's what Jesus is praying for. That's how he concludes his prayer. Let's understand what he's praying for in this oneness. Let's understand what Jesus is praying for in our salvation. He says, Father, look at verse 21 through 23 again. He says, I'm praying that they be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So he's, he's saying that there's this union between he and the Father, and he's praying for that same oneness that same union with us in him. And this is a clear reference, I think, to the understanding that we have through the New Testament of how we become Christians. So that salvation is not just a, a distant transaction where there's this high God in heaven who is so far removed from us and we are just these little earthlings down here and he just kind of dispenses and throws down unto earth almost like he's on Mount Olympus, some sort of Greek mythology where he throws down some little blessing where we're somehow atoned for. That's not how salvation works. 
There's a oneness here. Jesus comes and he joins himself to his people. He comes to earth. He becomes like us so that we might become one with him. He lays down his life on the cross. He bears the wrath of God. He bears the penalty for sin. He satisfies it. He extinguishes it. He removes it. He pays the penalty for the sin of his people. So the great problem in the Bible is that we're separated from God because of our sin, and every one of us have sinned. And the great solution of the Bible is that Jesus satisfies, he bridges, he atones, he, he puts himself in the place. He's the mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. And now the problem of separation has been satisfied by the mediatorial work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. He bridges the gap. And because he has satisfied the holiness of God and the wrath of God against our sin, we now can be reconciled, redeemed, joined back together with God. This is the doctrine, the beautiful doctrine of union with Christ. And here's what happens. Our hearts are dead. We're dead in our sins, separated from God who is holy. Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect life, bears the wrath of God, defeats death and the grave, rises again, and when he saves a person, he gives them a new heart. He regenerates them. He makes them alive. And that new heart has faith that comes with it. And that new heart then trusts in Jesus, is enabled to trust in Jesus. And what does that faith do? It joins you. It unites you to crack Christ, and it grafts you into him. You are now with him. You're one with Christ because of the new heart and the faith that he's given you. Now, don't believe this just because I'm saying this. Believe this because this is what the Bible says. Let me read it to you. A few verses that speak of this oneness of salvation, how it comes about. It's, again, I'm wanting you to see this picture. It's not a distant transaction where God dispenses grace from afar, but he comes to us, he brings us back from death to life, and he joins us to himself. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, the former me is dead. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's a union there. There's a oneness. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you see that, that union, that oneness? Jesus comes, lays down his life, gives us a new heart. We have faith. We put our faith in Jesus, and it joins us to us, and he takes residence in our heart. We are in him. He is in us. Essentially, the same thing is said by Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Listen to this and see this picture. For we have been united with him. We're one with him in a death like his. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So what is Paul saying there? Remember what Jesus has said? That all that the Father gives me will come to me? And that's a sort of sweeping 30,000 foot view of salvation. What actually happens on the ground? 
Well, all that the Father has given the Son, who he's praying for here, what actually happens in time in their salvation, they are dead in their sins. And when the Holy Spirit saves a person, he makes them alive, he gives them faith, he gives them a new heart, and he unites them by that faith to Jesus. And they are now, this is what happens, this is the beautiful mystery of salvation, is that when you get that new heart, when you are joined to him by your faith, you now, Jesus, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God, sees you in your sin as you being united with Christ in the cross. And so everything that Jesus accomplishes in his death on the cross is credited to you. In other words, his sin-bearing death is yours. You were with him. You died with him. But you also rose with him. So now your unity with him is that your sin goes into the ground. It's forgiven forever. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. And your newness, your righteousness, your resurrection is in Christ. So now God sees you not as a distant person to be saved, but as part of his son, joined to him by faith, and everything that Christ has accomplished is yours. And everything that is Christ is yours by this oneness that happens in our salvation. So do you see that salvation is not some distant transaction where you must just pray some sinner's prayer so that you can continue to live your life and then get your eternity secured? Friends, there's a joining together. God gathers his people and he gathers them into his son. And now everything that Jesus has accomplished is yours by faith. And everything that is his is yours. So the sin that he died for is gone. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Because how can somebody that's been joined to Christ, that's in the body of Christ, who has Christ in them, who's in Christ, how can their sin, which Jesus has died for, which God is accounting as having been gone on the cross, how can we bring it up again? How can it be a point of condemnation for them? It can't because Jesus died for it. It's gone. As far as the east is from the west. And why can Paul speak about your future in heaven? Not as if it's a possibility, but as if it's a certainty. Because you will rise with Christ. If you're joined with Christ, nothing will snatch you out of his hand. You see that? Now, again, we realize that just because you, I'm saying that, and just because you see that in the scriptures, uh, we actually have to believe this. We it's possible for a person to be deceived. But friends, do you see the certainty of salvation? All that the Father gives me will come to me. And how does it happen? Christ joins himself to his people. All of their sin is atoned for and all of their righteousness is guaranteed. And he is one with them. That's how you have become a Christian. And by implication now, if you have been joined with Christ with millions of other, billions of other believers through the ages and around the planet, then you are not only one with Christ, we are one with each other. And more primarily, in every local church that trust in Jesus, we are called to be one with one another. And the point that Jesus is making here is our oneness in salvation would produce a kind of witness to an onlooking world so that more would believe in him so that he would gather all of his people to himself. I think that's what's going on in this text. Jesus is praying for our oneness. 
and he's praying for our witness. And so, by implication, unity amongst believers is very, very important. I think that is the byproduct of Jesus' prayer here. Think about just the, just the, the glorious truths of this doctrine of salvation, of union with Christ, what it must produce in the life, what Jesus is calling for it to produce by implication in the lives of his people. He's praying that this would happen, verse 21, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. Again, verse 23, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So I conclude with three questions. Three questions about the implication of Jesus' prayer, which I think is, is essentially our not only oneness with him, which I hope I've explained well, but our oneness with one another. And more specifically, our oneness as a local church, because although we are joined by faith, uh, with Christians in India. I just had a conversation with one of our dear brother pastors in a church in India. It's amazing nowadays. You can pick up a little piece of plastic and you can punch numbers and you can call people across the world for free. It's amazing. And I spoke in real time to one of our brothers, Pastor Emmanuel in India, and we were talking about the work going on there and issues that they're facing in the church in India. But as much as I love Pastor Emmanuel and as much as I love the saints there in India or in Mexico or California or Canada or Uganda or wherever, we, we, we can't really do the practical implications of living out the oneness of the implications of this prayer because we're not with them. And so this gets us to the, the point that I want to end on, the, the, the implications, the application that I want to end on is the extreme importance of unity in the local church, which I think is a clear implication of this text. We are called to display the oneness of our salvation, which calls us to a oneness or unity with one another, to an onlooking world, so that the world might believe. So in other words, church life, how we do church life is meant to be a kind of evangelism, or meant to be a kind of corporate witness. It's meant to be a kind of display, a sort of preaching of the gospel collectively. So three questions for us to consider. What do we need to be unified on? What threatens our unity? And how do we cultivate unity? Quickly, what do we, what do we need to be unified on? Well, I think there's just several areas. We need to be unified on who God is. We need to know that he's triune. We need to all believe that in order to be part of this church. I think you should believe that if you're a Christian and if you're part of this local church, we should know that God is holy, that he's sovereign, that he's good, that he is three in one. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think these are essentials for the faith. I think we need to be in agreement and unified on the nature of man, the nature of the fall, that we are fallen people, that we need to be rescued. We don't just need to be improved. We need to be rescued from our sin. The real issue is salvation, 
not principles for better living. We need to be born again. We need to be unified on the nature of the gospel. I think if you're a Christian, you should believe, and certainly if you're a part of this church, you should believe in the exclusivity of Christ as the only way to be reconciled to the Father. We believe, according to John chapter 14, verse 6, as Jesus has said, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Christ. We believe in the doctrine of the apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, I think it says, where they said that salvation comes by no other name but by Jesus. So I think you must believe that Jesus is the only way. I think you, we should have an agreement on the nature of the word, that what we have before us is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God, that the 66 books of the Bible have been superintended and given to us specifically in the providence of God through the hands of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles and that what we have here is the sufficient, complete word of God and that it is not only inspired by God, in other words, breathed out, not just inspirational, but breathed out by God, but that because God has given it to us, it is, and God has written it through the Spirit, it is without error. It is, in everything that it touches on, it is true. There is no error. The, the word is inerrancy. We believe in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. And because it is God's Word, and because it is completely true, we believe that it is authoritative. There certainly are other sources of truth and knowledge in the world, but they are all subordinate to the Scriptures. And then finally, because God has breathed it out and because it's without air and because it has all authority, friends, the Bible is sufficient. The scriptures are sufficient. We have everything we need for life and godliness. Now, praise God for doctors that have invented cures to diseases and, 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 and wonderful surgeries and Praise God for cellular technology and combustible engines. And, and praise God for summer in Columbus, Georgia, and whoever vin invented air conditioning back in the day. Pra pra praise God. I mean, if that doesn't get an amen, come on, praise God for that. But friends, none of these things are necessary for life and godliness. But the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. You don't need the Enneagram. In fact, stay away from it. It, it. it will lead you into all sorts of just philosophical, psychobabble, mumbo-jumbo. You don't need some psychological tool to tell you what personality type you are. Friends, that's not what you need. You, we need to know who we are in light of the Scriptures and how to respond rightly to God's call for salvation and the obedience that we are all called to in Christ. We don't need any sort of socioeconomic demographic tool. They may inform us on some level, but friends, the scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. I think we should be unified on that. Next, we should be unified on the nature of the church. The church is the redeemed. The church is 
born-again Christians, people who are trusting in Christ. And so although we sort of use the English word church in a sort of wide sort of way, I think as a local church, we need to be very clear about what it means to be part of the church, those that have trusted in Christ and who have covenanted to get together with other believers and who have given their lives, they've given themselves to a kind of submission to a local congregation and, and a group of leaders who, of course, we are not infallible and perfect. We will make mistakes, but God intends for us to be accountable to one another. And so if you're here and you're not a member of this church, I'm very thankful for you. I'm thankful that you're here. I love you. I hope that you trust in Christ or are trusting in Christ. But we have a particular responsibility towards one another that we, the church is not merely a building or just everybody that happens to occasionally or even regularly show up, but it's a group of people who are committed to one another and have submitted themselves to their to a kind of mutual authority and submission to one another so that together they intend to live life together in this countercultural way to be a kind of witness to the world. And that can be very, very hard to do. Church is not a place where you just hop from place to place when a better preacher or a better music program or a better youth this or a better production or something that just kind of makes you feel better. Certainly there are legitimate reasons to leave a church or to find another church at times. But the church is a group of people who are called out by God to not just be with one another as long as it's easy and convenient, but to bear with one another in all of their differences and lack of sanctification and problems and rubbing each other the wrong way so that together they will be a beautiful display of the surpassing worth of Christ. I think we should agree that the church is not just a building. It's not just everybody that gathers here. And the point is not just getting a bunch of people to come by lowering the biblical teaching or watering it down but by being clear about what the gospel is, by being clear about what conversion is, what it means to trust in Christ, so that we're very clear about who the church is. I think that's the most loving thing that we as a local church can do for our community. It's not just attract people. William Steele, this wonderful Scottish pastor, said, uh, sort of snarkily, but I, I, I mean, I'm all for snarky on occasion. He said to young pastors, he said, let goats, speaking of the unregenerate, let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. But the church is for sheep and for sheep to be set apart, not so that they don't care about the goats, but that they actually love the goats in such a way that they're very clear with the goats as to what it means to be a sheep so that they don't give any goats false assurance that they're sheep. And my fear is, is that lots of churches, because they don't understand the nature of the church, give a lot of goats the false assurance that they're actually amongst Christ's sheep and they're not. And there's coming a day, Jesus says at the end of Matthew, when Jesus returns, that he will separate the sheep from the goats. In other words, Christians from non-Christians. And my fear is, is that especially in America, in this big church, mega church, seeker-sensitive culture that we live in, there will be a lot of goats that will be separated that will be very surprised that they're goats because they've been lied to and they've, they've all along thought they were sheep. 
because local churches don't understand what a church is. And I think we should have clarity on that. And then finally, I think we should have clarity on the nature of eternity. Uh, we're going somewhere, and it's either heaven or hell. It's either with Christ forever or separated from him forever in eternal torment. And that should cause us to be very serious about what we do. So I think those are the things that we need to be unified on. What threatens our unity? Well, we spent a, a whole four weeks in our midweek fellowship, and Robert's been teaching a class on this very idea, which I think is the great cultural threat of our day, and it is just this idea of expressive individualism, that basically we live in a culture where I get to do whatever I want to do, and nobody gets to tell me or impose upon me any sort of constraints. And that doesn't work with biblical Christianity. But the church oftentimes has given in to that, and we we, we, we grow up breathing this air of autonomy. We just think that we can just sort of craft our own individual path in life, and we believe in the authority of self. And it leads us, it, 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 it breaks up the unity of a church. It, it causes us to just kind of do what we want. It causes Christians to not really prioritize the church. It causes them to be sporadic in attendance. It causes them to not really serve their church. It causes them to just kind of just prioritize their own lives and not prioritize the ministry of their local group of Christians called a local church. And it just absolutely dilutes the witness of a church because the church then becomes no more than just a gathering of individual Christians who get together occasionally on a Sunday, maybe two out of four Sundays of a month, just to kind of get their spiritual fix. And that's because many Christians are just given, they've just given themselves to this kind of radical culture of individualism. And, you know, we look out at the culture, and I think there are true Christians that I think are truly born again, that will look at the culture and they will say, oh, look at all this progressive liberal ideology. Look at the LGBTQ plus agenda. And it's just this idea where you can just kind of create your own sort of authority. I can be who I want to be. I can do what I want to do. And we rightly sort of shake our heads at that and say, gosh, what? they're so deceived. But although it may not be as obvious, many Christians are sort of drinking from the same broken cistern. No, they're not saying that they're some other gender or that they can do whatever they want sexually, but they are sort of operating on the same principle. They're saying that I can basically do whatever I want apart from any sort of commitment or any sort of authority of a group of Christians who God has given, who God has joined me to, that have a kind of right that I need to serve, that I need to bear with. And they're just people that float around from place to place and they're individualistic Christians. I'm not saying that a selfish Christian is on the same scale of moral depredation than, than, than a, somebody in you know, some sort of wicked, perverse rebellion against God. But friends, I'm saying that they're drinking from the same brook of individualism that absolutely threatens the unity of the church. Thirdly, how do we cultivate unity? Well, I'm just going to read some scriptures and then I'll be done. Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In other words, be unified. This oneness that you have in Christ, let it work itself out into a horizontal unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what would it look like for a group of Christians in a local church to just let verse 4 be their rallying cry? And I praise God that this church is full, is full of Christians who live out verse 4. So friends, this is by no means a scold here. Uh, This is an encouragement. But if the Holy Spirit is scolding you right now, then let him scold you. Do not harden your hearts if this applies to you. So we should look out for the interests of others above ourselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament. Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And listen to verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. Now, verse 14, people say, what's my ministry? I want a ministry. I I, I need a ministry in the church. And I think we should just have a 1 Thessalonians 5.14 ministry. My ministry in the church is to get close enough to brothers and sisters where I am admonishing the idle, I'm encouraging the faint-hearted, I'm helping the weak, and I am patient with them all. And oh, by the way, at various seasons in my life, all of those things are going to describe me. That's a wonderful ministry. And we don't need somebody to, we don't need a sheet in the foyer for all of you to sign up. Let's, let's just all sign up for that ministry right now. What do you do? I do 1 Thessalonians 5.14. That's what I do. What do you do? 1 Thessalonians 5.14. That's a lifetime. That's a, that's a ministry well that will never run dry. And what, what type of fruit would be born in our lives and in the lives of this church if some 600 members of Crosspoint just grabbed a hold of verse 14 and they just said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig into life. I'm going to show up a little early. I'm going to leave a little late. I'm going to prioritize church life. I'm going to come. I'm going to get to know. I'm going to get outside of myself. I'm shy, but I'm going to find shy people. I'm not going to let anybody sit alone. I'm not going to gossip. When somebody says something that is gossipy, I'm going to let my ear be the graveyard where that gossip dies. I'm going to fight, and I'm going to look around. I'm going to know who's idle. I'm going to know who's going through a difficult time. I'm going to be part of the encouragement team, and I'm going to help the weak. I'm going to disciple people that uh, don't know as much as me, and I'm going to be patient with them all. That's a lifetime of work right there. Man, come on. First Thessalonians 5, I'll make you, I'll make you shadow box. Last one. Let love, Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. You know we had to get into Romans at some point. Verse 9. Let love be, again, here, how do we cultivate unity? We just dwell on Romans 12, verse 9 through 16. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Man, isn't that something? Like, be competitive with one another in showing honor to one another. No, no, no. I'm going to, I'm, no, no, no. 
I'm going to outdo you in doing you good. We're like fighting over who can bless one another. What a picture. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hospitality is a powerful word. We've flattened it in English. We think it means that you have to have a home that could be... uh, the, the subject of an HGTV show, and that if you have a really awesome kitchen, you can be the type of person that invites other Christians over for hospitality. That's not what that word means. Hospitality, in the original language, we are speaking English now, in the language that it was written in Greek, is a word conjunction. It means two words. It means Stranger love, love of strangers. So seek to love people not like you. Whether or not you have an HGTV ready kitchen or not. Bless those, verse 14, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. I love this. But associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. Associate with people who have no social benefit to you. Have your head on a swivel to encourage and love and befriend people who are really awkward to engage with in conversation. Associate with the lowly. And for all of you doctrine-loving, gospel-exalting Christians out there like me, who have been in this for a while and think you know what needs to be done, one final little thing here by Paul. Never be wise in your own sight. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, if we're Christians, something marvelous has happened. You've made us one with you by the glorious miracle of conversion. And you've made us one with one another. And you want that to be the way that you reach the world through the unity of the church put on display. God, this is unbelievable. Praise God for evangelistic ministries. Praise God for tent crusades. Praise God for people that preach the gospel in the open square. Praise God for all of these things. Give us that and give us more of those type of people. But God, may we not miss the primary plan of God to display the manifold wisdom of God through the church, through the life of the church, being unified together in Christ, Lord. Do it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.